This is Allison Stratton, co-author of Unbranding, 100 Branding Lessons for the Age of Disruption, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And marketingbookpodcast.com is also where you can send me a message with any comments, suggestions, or recommendations for the show. I love hearing from listeners like you from around the world. I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. I respond to every single message I get from listeners, so please introduce yourself. And now a word from our sponsor, which is where I work. It's a business-to-business marketing agency called Artillery. The companies that call in Artillery are typically frustrated with traditional interruptive marketing's declining ability to generate good sales leads and are overwhelmed with how best to use digital and content marketing to break through to the modern informed buyer. So if your company is struggling with transitioning to modern marketing, our all-hands workshop, buyer persona interviews, and content marketing plan may be just what you need to get unstuck and on the right track toward getting more qualified leads and more profitable sales. For more information, visit marketingbookpodcast.com. Now, On to today's interview. Today, we welcome Allison Stratton to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about the new book she has co-authored with her husband, Scott Stratton, Unbranding, 100 Branding Lessons for the Age of Disruption, published by Wiley. Allison Stratton is writer and co-creator of content at Unmarketing. She has co-written four best-selling books, Unmarketing, the book of business awesome and unawesome, unselling, and the marketing book with the greatest title in the English language, QR Codes Kill Kittens, How to Alienate Customers, Dishearten Employees, and Drive Your Business Into the Ground. And I have a strong hunch that this book we're going to talk about today will be the fifth bestseller. And um, don't just take my word for it. I say that because on page 114 of the book, it says Scott and Allison are literary geniuses. Okay. (laughs) Now back to Allison. Prior to becoming an author, Allison developed and ran an international maternity lingerie company called Nummies. She writes and speaks about social media, parenting, business, and marketing. Her current adventures also include co-hosting the Unpodcast with the man, the myth, the legend, her husband, Scott Stratton. Allison, congratulations on unbranding and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here and thank you for the congratulations. We like to call ourselves literary geniuses, you know, so no one else feels uncomfortable doing it for well, us. I read it in a book, so I know it's true. So <laughs> now I should say I had to interview your husband, Scott, twice. You in had order, to? In, in order to finally get the opportunity to interview you. So, yeah, so he's a bit of a bouncer. So yeah. you have to sometimes you have to go through Scott to get to me. Yeah, so I, I clearly I, I I made this one. So now I have to say one thing: your books they're so entertaining. And when I was reading, I can't remember if it was unselling or unmarketing a couple of years ago. I was reading it, 
and I was upstairs, my, my wife was downstairs, and I started laughing so hard. She came up and said, what is the matter with you? <laughs> and so once again, it happened. She and I were on a flight this last weekend. I was reading Unbranding, and sure enough, you two did it again. I started laughing so hard that my wife, who was sitting next to me, said, stop it. What? What, the, what, what are you You're doing? embarrassing me. You're embarrassing me, which I, I hear that a lot from her. But then <laughs> other people started looking at me, and I finally showed her the page that I was reading, and she read it, and she started laughing. So I was, you know, next time I'm just going to show her what I'm reading, and I'll get out of trouble. But kudos to you for having me, you know, kind of lose my composure in public. That's just the effect your book had. So <laughs> We try to write about and talk about things that make us react that way, either because we're laughing or because we're horrified or because we're kind of in awe of, of good things that companies are doing. So I'm glad we could pass it along to you when you're reading it. <laughs> Thank you. So let me just read one excerpt okay, and then we'll get into it. Unbranding has been in the works for a while now. When you've written unmarketing and unselling, it seems like the next logical step. But we've always fought against content for content's sake, and we waited until we had something to say. We could tell you how to be a brand in one sentence. Be good to your customers, employees, and vendors, and have a great product and or service. But we can't sell that for $20. The message of unbranding isn't new for us. Branding is in every part of your business. How and whom you hire is branding. Your front line is branding. What your CEO likes on Facebook is branding. Branding isn't a department or a campaign. In fact, branding isn't in your hands at all. Your brand belongs to your customers. It's what they think of when they hear your name and how they tell your story. So, Allison, the, the book title is Unbranding, 100 Branding Lessons for the Age of Disruption. Explain what you mean by the age of disruption. Well, today in business and in marketing, we're surrounded by so much change, right? This The technology is, is pushing us to this point where there's all these new things that we have to do, right? This kind of panic. We have to be on every social media platform. We have to be using, you know, AI. We, we can't stand still. We constantly have to be chasing change and innovation and development. And the problem with that is that we don't take the time to stop and ask ourselves why. We lose focus on what we should be doing, which is, you know, creating this great products and service for our customers and handling customer service. And instead, we take that time and energy and we focus on trying to be the first and the coolest and the hippest to whatever new technology, either because our competitors are doing it or huge companies are doing it or because, you know, our teenager told us that we have to be on, you know, A, B or C platform. And that's kind of this age where we're, we're living in where it's the so much, just constant, constant, constant feedback for change. And so, you know, that tends to be thought of as disruptive, right? So things like, you know, Airbnb didn't exist, you know, 10 years ago, and now all of a sudden it's changed the hotel industry. These kinds of disruptive technologies that are changing business and we're kind of running at full speed trying to keep up. And so we looked at 100 stories. We actually probably looked at, you know, a thousand stories and, and took our hundred favorite and talked about companies that were either being successful through all of these changes or were kind of falling on their faces through all of these changes and tried to distill, you know, how are successful companies managing 
disruption? How are they able to get through all of these times of change and all of these new things and still be successful on the other side? Mm-hmm. Like what? Are, you know, they have a North Star. They have something they're following. Yeah, well, actually, what we found was it was loyalty. So that loyalty, creating loyalty, was kind of the antidote to disruption. Right. And so before we get into some of the specifics of the book, you do talk about the four factors of brand yes. loyalty, which help you thrive in the, all this disruption and, and gives you focus that, that leads to success. Could you walk us through sure. the four? They're, they're all start with a C. <laughs> they do. Because I'm in marketing. They do. They all start in a C. So first of all, there was comfort. So this idea that successful brands that had kind of created loyalty had focused on comfort. So they're, this is a basic tenet of just being good business, but meeting you know, customers' needs, taking them from a place of, you know, a need or a want into a place of comfort. So companies that had built loyalty had focused on that. What do their customers need? What do they want? And how can we answer that question for them? The second one was convenience, which is, I think, something that's so important today. Convenience is the idea that because there are so many options today, it's even more important that we provide convenience for our customers. Because when I want to go, let's say, out to eat, I have, it's no longer just the four restaurants in my neighborhood. Now I have a computer, a device in my hand that can offer me, you know, hundreds and hundreds of options with reviews and all of these things. So convenience becomes very important. And then cost, which is really value. But as you mentioned, we needed to have four C's because it's very important that everything starts to see. So value. So cost, meaning, you know, are you valuing not only your, your customer's currency. So in terms of how much your product costs, because we're actually really against sort of, you know, diving to the bottom of the barrel cost wise, but are you focusing on value? So when your customers come out on the other side of dealing with you, do they feel as though their money and their time has been valued by you? And then the fourth uh, C is convergence. So we see this a lot with social media, particularly where people want to feel that their values are in line with the companies that they're giving their money to. And more and more now we're finding out, you know, the values of companies because their CEO is saying something on Twitter or, you know, a, a press release comes out that says that, you know, they there are certain filings for sexual harassment or things like that. So in the world that we live in today, convergence is really, really important. So we, what we found in looking at all of these different companies is that the companies that have been the most successful in creating loyalty had had those four things, the the comfort, the convenience, the cost, and the convergence. Super. Well, now you talked about value. So let's dig into that just a bit more. In the book, you say that good branding is about bringing value. And then later you say that when your values align with your company's activities, you're able to provide transparency that sets you apart. And you say that in this age of disruption, success isn't driven by the bottom line, it's value-driven. So can you, can you say more about what you mean by bringing value? Well, there's that two different kinds of value, right? So that one type of value that we can talk about is about currency and about time. So that if somebody is going to be your customer, they need to come out on the other side feeling like that was worth their while. And that's kind of the more traditional bottom line kind of value that we might be talking about, right? And because they can share all that information so broadly with people, Everyone wants to see that they're going to get value out of something. They don't want to waste their time or their money or any of their resources investing in your company if they don't aren't going to come out the other side feeling that they receive value. The other kind of value is that sort of like the, you know, the things that we believe in. 
And that's where the convergence comes into play. And that's kind of where we see that we want to have the same values as the companies that we work with, right? So there's two kinds of different types of value. So the very first chapter of the book, it was my favorite chapter title, and it was called Logos Don't Matter. (laughs) (laughs) Why did you pick that to be the very first chapter? And what do you mean when you say that logos don't matter? Well, we chose it to be the first chapter because it's kind of the basis of what people think branding is about, right? Like if you, when you talk to somebody and they say they're rebranding their company or that they're going through the rebranding process as part of a company, as an employee, almost every single time, 95% of the time, what they're talking about is, you know, they're going to have a new logo and the colors are changing or, you know, Apple took a little nick out of the, you know, the Apple logo or, you know, and, and all of these things that tends to be what people think about when they think branding. And what we've been talking about, what basically the main message of the book is, is that that's not what branding is about at all. Branding is about what people think of when they see that Apple or, you know, that whatever it may be. It has absolutely nothing to do with what that logo is. And so that's why we say that it doesn't matter. Because when you look at companies that have been through really negative feedback, it doesn't matter whether they you know, shine up their logo if they haven't actually changed anything. It doesn't matter if they make their website have, you know, blue across the top instead of purple across the top. It doesn't change what the company is about and it doesn't change what their brand means to people when they hear about them or think about them. And that's why we say that logos don't matter. Now, you know, of course we understand people spend, you know, people spend time in their lives designing logos and redesigning logos. You will never get that time back. I mean, that is like, has to be, it's a bottomless pit of energy to, you know, come up with the perfect look or the perfect color or the perfect, you know, image for your company. And we really value designers. And we think that that it it is important that you look professional. It is important that you look good, but that isn't what branding is about. Branding is about what people think of when they see whatever that shiny object is that you've decided to put on your product or on your service. And so that's why we say that it doesn't matter. Yeah, you could have an airline yes. with a beautiful <laughs> logo and you could be dragging people unwillingly off the planes. Uh, <laughs> that beautiful logo is not going to help. Nobody on that airplane is going to get off and say, you know what, I just love their <laughs> logo so much. I'm getting back on that plane to get dragged off again tomorrow because did you see the color blue that they used? That was just stunning. So, you know, you can't, it's it's an oversimplification, you know, it's this quick fix idea that we think that we can change everything by changing the name of our company or shining up, you know, changing a little bit of a font or something and that everything that has happened is going to go away. And that isn't what branding is at all. People think of two things when they see your logo, they're going to think of the most extreme experience that they've, you know, had with your brand. So, and that can be something that they've had personally with your brand or something they've heard about. And they're going to think of the most recent experience with that they've had with your brand. They're never going to notice, you know, all of that fine work that you put into that exact logo. They're going to remember the experience that they had. And and that's what branding is about. And that's why we started the book with that chapter. And that's why, you know, the chapter one for me was a stand up and and a slow clap because (laughs) I, I, I too have found that people think it's all about graphic design and I, that just seems like a very small part of it. In fact, you say that human resources is the most powerful branding division in your company. So explain what you mean when you say that the ethics and practices behind your company's hiring policies 
or what constitutes branding? It is absolutely the most important thing because these are the the people that make up your company. And these are the people that are going to talk to your customers. They're the people who are going to make your products, who are going to ship your products, who are going to provide the services that you're charging for, who are going to be answering customer service complaints and also answering customer questions. So the the people that you choose to have in your company are the most valuable asset that you have. And so it is critical that you have good people in your company. And one of the things that tends to happen is, for example, the airline that you uh, mentioned, which whose name we're not going to mention, of course, but because no one knows who we're talking about, they're notorious for treating their employees badly. And employees who aren't valued and employees who are treated poorly are going to pass that along to your customers. And so it's really, really important. It's also it's where you're spending your money. So you're investing in people. Right. You're, you're taking the money that you've made and you're investing it in your employees through their salaries and through benefits and, and your resources through time and space that you have to offer them. And so that should be the most important job that you have is that making sure you have the best representatives inside your company and people you can trust and people that will represent the brand in a positive way. So many problems that we see in social media are hiring problems. When you see a, when you see a restaurant and an employee gets caught doing something awful or treating a customer badly, that's not a social media problem. That's a hiring problem. That person was brought into the company. They weren't treated in a way that they felt valued, and you know, or maybe they're just a jerk. And then you should have found that out before bringing them on board and putting your logo that you know your big branding exercise logo on their shirt. So that's why we think it's really important. The most important. Yeah, and at the risk of giving away which airline, in the <laughs> book you talk about Dave Carroll who wrote the the song and made the video United Breaks Guitars because Yeah, we interviewed him. He's a musician and his guitar was damaged. He I think he even saw it being damaged as they were loading it on there and he tried to get paid back by United and they just completely blew him off. So he made this video, put it on YouTube, got uh, I want to say millions of views, their stock price dropped. They were still a problem. But he said that, uh, what I didn't know until I read your book, is that he said that after he did that, he heard from a number of employees from United who said, oh, you have no idea. You have yeah. no idea how bad it is to work there. Yeah. And we, and that they weren't the only people who said that. Like you find that when when reading different stories about the airline that it's not a it wasn't a great place to work. And people who feel valued and feel like they're being treated well by their company are going to pass that along to the customers. I mean, it shouldn't. It's not you know this brilliant mind blowing fact that if you treat your employees well, they're going to treat your customers well. It shouldn't be. <laughs> I wish it wasn't. This isn't rocket surgery, people. <laughs> So let's jump to another part that I just thought was so interesting. You all interviewed a CMO of a financial company, and you kept his name anonymous. And you asked him what was the biggest mistake people are making in the marketing industry now. And he said, I think that the people in their schools, mostly with their MBAs, have been taught this whole idea of disruption in advertising. It's done to such a degree that they don't realize that marketing is not about disrupting people's lives. It's about engaging them within a social or cultural phenomenon. The thing people get wrong is that someone actually cares about your brand. So Allison, why do you think this is still so pervasive if it's not? We sort of made, yeah, we sort of made fun of him a little bit. We called, I think the chapter's like the grump interview with a grumpy old man or something. I thought it was about me. 
Yeah, no, it's not. And and the joke we made was it wasn't an interview with Scott either. Right. I mean, first of all, he didn't understand disruption, right? Like he's taking what we're talking about, about disruption is about technology changing industries, right? Like creating industries that didn't exist before now exist. And it's not a new thing. It's always been that way. We, we, as we develop technologies, they replace old technologies. Disruption isn't a new idea. It's just that because of where we're living in now, it's happening very quickly. He's talking about disruption, meaning like interruption, right? So that he doesn't think that people want to be interrupted and that he doesn't think people care about, you know, your company enough to want to be interrupted, which is probably true. I mean, you know, and that's one of the things we talk about is that marketing should be about creating great stories and experiences for other people to share for you. Not that you run around as a brand sharing how great you are, but that you, and interrupting people's conversations, but that you, create great stories by doing your job and and creating great services and products and then let the world share those stories for you. So your job isn't to push into people's conversations or push out your messages. It's to create stories worth sharing and worth telling. But it's it just seems, maybe it's human nature, maybe it's never going to change, but there's this sense that so many marketers have that they think that they have a captive audience. Yeah. I mean, and to the point where sometimes you don't, like it's the conversation is better when you're not there. Like, you know, Scott and I kind of joke around, we talk a little bit about like the people don't really want to chat with like their toilet paper company, you know, like, or if I'm having a conversation with a friend in social media about a new pair of shoes that I love, I don't necessarily need the company that sold me the shoes to pop into the conversation and kind of be creepy and wave at me, you know, like, uh-huh. I, I think that part of that is we, we want to make sure people are talking about us as marketers, which I think, which is understandable, but I just think that energy and, and resource could be so much better utilized in creating stories we're sharing. Right. Or a better product or a better experience for their customers. Yeah. A better product, a better service, even just like the capacity to share. Like sometimes one of the things when the convenience side of things that we talked about is that, you know, sometimes it's just so hard to buy your product. Like that's, that's marketing and branding. Like if I go to a website, I'm trying to buy something and I have to, you know, jump through 20 hoops to buy it. And, and it's just so hard to do that's bad branding. So we, we just have to make sure that we're making it easy for people and convenient for people, not only to use our products and services, but also to share stories about them. And, and sometimes we need to get out of the way. And, th- and that's not an excuse for not answering. Like we always need to answer our customers. And if, if somebody, you know, post something and is actually pointing it at us as companies, we definitely need to be there to reply to it, whether it's, you know, negative feedback or it's just an an awesome like return of a high five because they loved us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we don't need to interject into every conversation because we can make it weird, you know, yeah. by showing up. Oh, yeah. Marketers are perfectly <laughs> capable of ruining everything. Explain what you mean when you say that, the, and this may be related, the most effective forms of branding happen when we don't realize we're being marketed to. Well, because we don't like push messages, right? Like we don't like them. It, it, marketers are people. And if you think about the things that you like, the ways you le- like to learn about products, you don't like to have them pushed at you. And and we trust strangers more than we trust brands sometimes. Yes. And, and so, you know, the, the best thing we can do is provide great stories, like I said, and then, have people share them for us because that's what we want. That's what we trust. Like we, we definitely trust strangers sometimes more than brands. And then we live in a world full of these wonderful reviews, right? Like where we can find out what our friends like, which is so incredible. I love, I love 
that. I love that I can know when I'm in a city that I've never been to that, you know, people that I trust already because I have a previous relationship with them, you know, liked this restaurant. I love that. I, I love that I can, you know, find out what my friends and family, where they enjoyed being on vacation or, or all of these things. It creates this huge amount of trust. And, and the brand doesn't even need to earn the trust by pushing the message out. They just earn the trust by being great. And I think that's wonderful. And I think those are the messages that we really trust. I'm going to trust, a, let's say, a restaurant review from a bunch of people that I'm connected with online way more than I'm going to trust a commercial for the restaurant. Right. And there's all kinds of research to back that up, too. I think advertising's down there at, I don't know, 13% and opinions of your friends are like at 85 and opinions of perfect strangers are at 84 or something like that. <laughs> Just and advertising can do amazing things. Like there's certainly a lot of value in, in, like I said, with the logos, like making your company look professional and good and all that's very important, but it is never going to take the place of fantastic service or a fantastic product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So can you explain what brand envy is and, and why it's a waste of time? Well, I think partially it's a symptom of being in a world where we have so much information at our fingertips. And I think that sometimes as it depends on who you're talking to, but like as a, let's say an entrepreneur or part of a smaller company, sometimes we get very worked up in what our competitors are doing or what these, some huge company is doing. And we focus so much on what they're doing and who they are and what they're trying to do that we lose sight of the value of what we bring to the table. And so, and I think that's part of the, you know, the chasing the next big thing disease kind of that we have mm -hmm. where shiny we see object. what, yeah, the shiny auto, we see what somebody else is doing. And so, you know, we need to be on Snapchat and we need to be on, on this and we need to be here and we need to be doing like, you know, virtual reality tours of our houses. And we need to, you know, there's just so much. And if we're not doing any of it, well, it's really bad for our business. So we need to think about the why, why do we want to do something? And if the answer to the why is because, you know, Google's doing it or, because, you know, or anyone or your competitors doing it or whoever you're looking at with this kind of, you know, envious green glass kind of thing on, you need to stop doing that. And you really need to answer the question of the why you want to do it. Why is it good for your business? Why do your customers want you to do it? And then you need to make sure you allocate the resources that it requires. You know, you can't just spread yourself super thin and think that you're everywhere. You can't automate, for example, across, you know, 20 different social media platforms and give yourself a pat on the back because you went to all of them. Like you didn't, you, you didn't go anywhere. Right. And so, and I, so I think the envy is part of that. Like we're very outward focused. And of course, in business, you need to know what your competitors are doing, of course, but you also don't need to base everything that you do on what they're doing because you're not seeing behind the scenes. And so that that why question, and that's what, I mean, you mentioned QR codes kill kittens when you gave the introduction. That's what QR codes kill kittens is all about. It's all about QR codes as the example of a kind of technology that at the time people were chasing after to look cool. And they weren't asking themselves like, why, why are we doing this? And, and if you don't ask yourself that, you can't measure success. 
you can't allocate properly. And so you get lost in business trying to chase after things like that. Absolutely. I've, I've heard it referred to as uh, check the box marketing. So in other words, let's check the box. Let's say you're a big B2B company and the CEO comes and says, what's our Snapchat strategy? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure our buyers are, are on Snapchat, but just as, as an example. And also, I mean, so many companies, like you could almost put them in three buckets. They're either focused on their customers, they're focused on their competition, or they're focused on themselves. Yeah. Know, very inward product focused. But you talk about the reasons for doing something. And at one point you say that if the answer to any business or marketing decision is because, and I, I'm using air quotes, we want to appear cutting edge, why do you recommend stopping immediately? Because it's like, it isn't real. Like it, it, It's like saying, I want to be successful because, you know, I want people to think I'm cool. And that, that means nothing. Like it, it can't be measured. It can't be, you can't, it, it, we need things that are measurable. If we're going to really, if, let's say we, we have a company, we want to grow it. We need to be able to measure things. We need to be able to tell if something is a success or not. And you can't possibly measure people thinking you're innovative or not. Like it just, it is, isn't measurable. And so really you want to think you're innovative. Like you want to think you're cool because oh, yeah. you're doing that. And that's what it really means. And the problem is that it takes resources away from good business. And it and even more importantly, it takes resources away that you could be spending on actually creating stories that would get shared across all those platforms without you even having to do it. And so it just it can get you twisted in a knot and and it doesn't solve a problem for your customers. It comes back to those four parts of creating loyalty. Seeming innovative doesn't answer any of those loyalty questions. Yeah. Right. All it all it does is make you feel a certain way about yourself. Now, if you're in business to feel a certain way about yourself, then it's successful for you. Good job. But if you're actually in business to create long lasting relationships with customers who return to you time and time again for your for your products or your services, then you need to be looking at those four questions. And that the answer to why being because we want to so seem cutting edge doesn't answer anything about value, anything about convenience, anything about comfort, or anything about convergence. So that's a great way. So if a marketer's there and there, it'll be a it'll be a Monday morning because the boss will have read some in-flight magazine with some new idea, <laughs> and they'll say, "I want to seem more cutting edge." It seems like one possible response would be to say, "Oh, great, yeah, that's super." You know, boss, I really want to be measured by my results. Is there some way we can measure that and then try to steer the conversation back to those four C's? Yeah, because it's a really hard needle to move. Like you can't you can't move it. You know, it's it's not possible. So. It's almost not great to say, okay, we'll, we'll do it to seem cutting edge because you, you can't, you can't do that. And you can't fake those things either. Like if, you know, if you're trying really hard to be cutting edge, like you, you might not be, does that make sense? Like you can't fake that sort of thing. You just have to focus on your own innovation and making the best possible product that you can. And then other people will share it for you. And the people who are sharing it will be way more authentic and way more capable of making you seem cutting edge than you are to yourself, if that makes sense. So we want to always bring people back to those four things and try and say to you know your boss or your manager or whatever and say, okay, but what can we actually measure? And then Let's work on that. Yeah, and then try to, maybe they'll see a shiny object outside the conference <laughs> room window and they'll move on to, to something else. Yes, it's, I think consumers, you're not going to find people with a more finely tuned BS meter <laughs> than, yeah, than, than the people you're, sure. trying to, you're trying to talk to. They can sniff it out. 
better than better than anyone. So, you know, just one other question about competitors, which I thought was very interesting and requires a certain amount of humility and honesty by companies. And explain what you mean when you say that much of the time our competitors are able to steal business from us. It's really our own fault. Well, what we're talking about there is we talk about something and we we actually started talking about it in Unselling, which is the book that was before this. And we talked about it a little in a marketing as well. And that's the experience gap. So this idea that the, the space between your customer's best experiences experience with you that they've ever had and the between the worst experience that they've ever had with you, we call that the experience gap. So if I go to a restaurant one time and I have an amazing lunch, that's one side of the gap. And then if I go back again and it's terrible, that's a really big gap. And this idea is that the bigger the gap, the more chance there is for competition to jump in, right? So if I go every time and it's amazing, I'm going to keep going to that restaurant. But if I start going and that gap starts getting bigger and bigger, there is much more of a chance that I'm going to go over and try the restaurant next door. So what we want to try and do is keep our cu- our gap as small as possible and keep our customers coming back. And there is no such thing as we talked about it in selling as a neutral brand experience. It's always going up and down, right? So it's always improving or coming down. It's never just sort of like laying flat. Every single point of contact you have with your market, it's moving the needle of the brand experience up or down, up or down. And so that means that, and that's not just your own personal experiences. If that same restaurant ends up having a news story come out that they were, you know, that they fired someone for wrong reasons, let's say, I'm going to hear about that story. And that's going to move the needle down and open up that gap again. So what we need to try and be doing is keeping the gap as small as possible. And that's what we mean by, you know, if competition comes in, that that in many ways, can be our own fault, because we got lazy, or because we focus maybe too much on new customer acquisition and didn't take care of our current customers. So that opened up the gap. You know, there's nothing people you, you hate hearing more when you're a loyal customer than that new customers are getting access to some great deal that you're not getting, oh, right? Yes. So then you always hear that and you think, well, I'm going to switch phone companies or I'm going to go to a different, you know, whatever provider for this and that. So we have to be treating our customers fantastically as all the time. We can't take them for granted. And we need to know that they're going to get access to information about how we're treating our employees and how we treat other customers. So we need to constantly be courting them. And that keeps that gap as as small as possible and means that we're not opening it up for our competition to jump in. Yes. Now, last question about the book, and I want to circle sure. back to the, the experience. And again, this was lesson 100 out of 100. So we've talked about the first chapter <laughs> and the 100th, but I thought it was terrific, but it also made me laugh. And I just want to quote from it says, uh, actually, the chapter is entitled, Isn't Yelp the Sound a Dog Makes When It's in Distress? You like that? Yeah, yeah. I wrote, I wrote that one. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I see what you did there. And as a matter of fact, when I was reading this, there were two dogs on the love seat with me. They all have to be right there. I could be on a bigger couch, but no, they want to be right there. You say, at Unmarketing, our top three most asked questions are, <laughs> one, what's the next big thing in social media and digital marketing? In other words, are Twitter, Snapchat, YouTube, et cetera, dead? The second question, which is which really spoke to me, is, Scott, I also want a man bun. What's your secret to great hair? And the third question is, what can we do about negative reviews online? Explain what you mean when you say that if you've got a lot of negative reviews, you don't have a Yelp problem. 
So this came about from a question and answer that Scott had. So he was doing a keynote and they had a question and answer period after and a woman waited in line, waited in line. And and she came up and she asked him and she said, you know, our company is getting tons of bad reviews online and we just, we need to know how to fix this problem. Is there something we can do with Yelp to, you know, should we be paying for advertisements? Like, what can we do? We have all these bad reviews. And he just looked at her and he said, you don't have a Yelp problem. You have a business problem. Like you can't control reviews in that by blaming the social media platform that they're posted on. It's the same as any kind of feedback, right? So we get feedback in business and we get to decide how we take it. And sometimes we can be defensive or we can, you know, point fingers, we can throw employees under the bus, we can do all these kinds of things. And what it is true that some kinds of feedback we shouldn't pay all of our attention to. There's always going to be the very, very loud angry customer who had a bad day, it didn't go well, and they're blaming us. We, we understand that. We've both we've been in business. We get that. They're not all customers are you going to have a good relationship with. But there's also the people in the middle who are giving you feedback, positive and negative, and you need to be able to listen to it. And so if you are getting a lot of bad Yelp reviews about your coffee being bad, maybe your coffee's bad. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe. You know, maybe the answer is rather than, you know, getting angry at reviewers online and focusing on having a Yelp problem, maybe have a coffee problem. And if you just fixed your coffee problem, the Yelp problem would go away. And so that's what we talk about a lot is that if there, this tool that we have in social media and in review sites is giving us business feedback that we would have paid millions of dollars for years ago. We would have loved to get feedback from customers. It would have been incredible. And so now we're getting it. And, and sometimes we just don't like to hear it. And we're upset. And the worst thing we can do is react in an angry, defensive, sometimes mean way on Yelp or whatever the platform or is. Sue the reviewer. Or sue the reviewer or all of these things. What we need to be thinking about is, first of all, custom, customers just want to be heard. That's the first step. So make sure you're listening, replying, you know, thanking people for their feedback, letting them know that you're sorry, apologizing, all of these different things. And then take the feedback and look at it. And if you're getting enough of it and it's from, you know, trusted sources, you need to be listening to that feedback and making improvements. And then you'll see re your reviews go up. We saw a, there's a I'm not sure if it's in this book, to be honest, it might be an unselling a story about Ashley Home Furniture. And it was, you know, a woman had gone through and she'd ordered a bunch of furniture and it had been delivered and everything had gone wrong. Like oh, she'd it been was super, in this book. It was. Yeah. OK. So she was super happy. Right. She bought she paid for everything. She very happy. And then when it was delivered, it was delivered on the wrong day and the furniture was broken and the delivery guy was rude. And like, basically she was super happy until the furniture came and then everything fell apart. And so she went on line and she left a review, a one-star review, because that's the lowest you can give and just said, you know, this was terrible. All these things happen. And the owner of the store replied right away on Yelp on, I don't know if it was Yelp, but replied right away on the platform and said, you know, we're so sorry. Not only did he say he was sorry, but he made it right. Like he just, he went in and he fixed the problem, which is what we're supposed to do in business when problems happen, which they always do. And then she took a review of one star. She moved it up to five star review and wrote that she would be more, she would definitely give them business again. So what happens is that here is something that you think can, it can get no worse, right? Here's a woman furious, leaving an angry review and the store owner comes in, he deals with it in a polite, 
effective way. He makes things right as he should because he's in business and she gave him money for furniture. So it's his job. And in the end, the store comes out looking even better after the negative thing happened than they had before. So, and he could have done a lot of different things. He could have blamed the delivery person. He could have, you know, blamed the review site. He could have blamed his employee who was working that day. He didn't do any of it. He took ownership and he fixed the problem and he made it right. And and that's the attitude we need to have when we come to review sites. Yeah. And it's not that there's a problem. It's how you deal with the problem. It's an opportunity, right? It yeah. can be an opportunity. What a fan he's turned her into. And exactly. since this is the Marketing Book Podcast, I can't help but recommend two books that go into either greater depth about this. One of them is Hug Your Haters by Jay Bear. Just even the title of the book, he's saying, do you have any idea how how helpful this feedback is? Absolutely. And then the other one is Manipurated by Daniel Lemon, which is all about online reviews and this new world of, of managing them and, and responding to them. And I'll have links to those two interviews in the show notes at Marketing Book Podcast. So, Allison, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? It would be to ask yourself that why question. So not to get too distracted by what's new and bright and shiny. I love innovation. We have every gadget in this house. We love cool toys and cool tools. But think about the why. And if the answer isn't because it will make my be- my business better and it will make my customers happier, then it's not the right tool for you. So that would be my kind of like one take home. Focus on loyalty. Think about what's going to keep you in business in 100 years, not what's going to improve, you know, how you feel about how cool you are in the next five minutes but what's really going to keep you in business over the long term and uh, avoid the bright and shiny. (laughs) Amen. But I have a feeling you and Scott are never going to be lacking for (laughs) keynote topics related to people who don't do those things. So no, we've been pretty lucky that way. (laughs) Common sense, you know, not that common Common sense. not that common. (laughs) So what books have inspired your work and career? Well, so I'm like, I'm a writer. So, you know, I read a lot. I love, I was going to hug your haters was one of the books I was going to mention for marketing folks. Everybody writes every it's okay. Everybody writes is great too. That's Anne Hanley yes. who's a marketer. And you know, so I read a lot, but I'm also, to be honest, I'm kind of like a, you know, more a fiction reader. So I might not have like the best marketing books for everybody. But I just asked what books. I didn't say marketing books. What fiction do you like? I'm reading Ages for Hawk right now, which is a cool book. It's a non-fictional book about raising hawks. (laughs) So I'm a nerd, but don't mind. It's really good if you want that. Yeah. And my son just got John Green's new book, Autographed, from Amazon. So as soon as he's finished that, I'm going to read it because I try and keep on top of what he's reading. Got to try and keep up with my teenagers. Um, and Good he did some, yeah, John Green did something cool. So they autographed a bunch, which I, we were thinking about for our book and a marketing thing, which is kind of neat for marketers. Mm-hmm. He autographed a bunch of books. And if you pre-ordered and you were one of the lucky sort of like first, I think it was a couple hundred books, you got an autographed copy. So my son ordered the book like months ago and has been waiting at the door to see if he got an autographed copy. And he did. Oh. So there's, yeah, he was very excited. And he's already read like 100 pages yesterday. So there's a cool marketing tool and a neat thing to do for your readers, too. I thought it was really neat. Oh, terrific. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your new book? Well, if you check out on marketing.com, there's a page with all of our books and places that you can go and buy it. And branding is available now in uh, retailers, Amazon, all over the place. So if you go down marketing.com and click on the books link, you'll be able to find their uh, book vendor of choice there. 
And then we have the M podcast, which we record. So there's an episode comes out every week and we talk about business stories and consumer advocacy a lot and things that make us laugh and can cry in marketing and business. And I'm an Allison on Twitter. If you want to say hi in the Unmarketing Facebook page, we're always there doing fun stuff. Well, that's so, a good one. Find, everybody needs to find the Unmarketing Facebook page. And Unallison is with one L in case you're... That's right. Unallison with one L on Twitter. And I am one of the last Twitter people standing. I love Twitter. So I'm always there. I'm always, I'm always there. I'm fighting till the end. Yeah. Well, good. So well we'll make sure to have all those links in the show notes at Marketing Book Podcast. And I just wanted to mention at one point in the book, which again, made me laugh, you said, I know this will probably surprise all of you, but we actually do love a good brand story. <laughs> sure, the train wrecks are fun, but at the core of our seemingly bitter hearts, we love when customers are treated well and companies thrive. The bar isn't even set that high. Most branding and customer service is so terrible that a company only has to be mediocre to catch our eye. Put that on an inspirational poster with a picture of an eagle flying into a mountain. So in in honor of you and Scott, we have actually created that poster of an eagle. Awesome. And we're going to have that at the show notes at awesome. marketingbookpodcast.com. You, you got to be careful what you put in your books because we're, you know, a lot of us follow instructions, Alice. I know. You got to be careful. It's true. We, uh, Scott says once he wanted to make socks, he, he, one of his quotes that's very famous is I'm not the jackass whisperer. So now we have jackass whisperer socks. So, you know, you never know. You ask for things. They come sometimes. It happens. So the name of the book is Unbranding 100 Branding Lessons for the Age of Disruption. The authors are Allison and Scott Stratton. Allison, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. And that closes the book on episode 146 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback on or suggestions to improve the show, or perhaps if I can make a book recommendation, or you just want to send me a bottle of single malt scotch, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is Mark. Book or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Rebecca Geyer to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, Smart Marketing for Engineers, an inbound marketing guide to reaching technical audiences. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 